Hello, everybody, and welcome to Diplomacy 201, a podcast for those curious about the globe at the Woodrow Wilson Center's Canada Institute. We have with us today a very special guest, Mr. Ben Rosewell, uh, Ambassador Ben Rosewell, I suppose. Ben is a former Canadian diplomat who has been in some of the more interesting parts of the world over the last little while. He was most recently our ambassador in Venezuela, the Canadian ambassador in Venezuela. He is also a published author. You're sort of a thinker. You've uh, published book chapters, I, I believe. And right now you're in the tech world. I understand that you're running a company in Toronto that you co-founded, which is called Better Place, which is a app for, for facilitating and enhancing civic engagement and action. And I'd be interested in learning about that too. But first of all, I'd like to welcome Mr. Ben Rosewell. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Audrey. This is a real honor. Yeah, well, the, uh, the honor is all ours. Um, Ben, you've done some interesting things and you have some interesting ideas. So I wanted to actually start by getting a better sense of your background. Maybe you could talk about uh, some of the places you've been, some of your work in democracy engagement, and some of the ideas you've been pursuing and how that relates to what you're doing now. Great. Well, I guess I got my start actually in this city. I'm always happy to come back to Washington, D.C. because I was a student at the School of Foreign Service in Georgetown from 1989 to 93, and that's what really piqued my interest originally in uh, diplomacy and international relations. Uh, I went on to join the Canadian Foreign Services in 1993 and served there for 24 years until I left last summer. My assignments abroad, I did a short one actually in New York City for the UN. Then my major assignments were uh, Egypt, 1996 to 98, Iraq in the very first few years of the American presence there. Um, Afghanistan from 2000 to 2000 and sorry 2008 to 2010 and then most recently as you mentioned Venezuela 2014 to uh, 2017. And now where are you Ben? Uh, so I'm now I'm in Toronto and I run a Better Place. Uh, this is a, a software company that I set up in 2016 uh, with Farhan Ladhani who's a longtime collaborator of mine uh, from the Canadian government as well. Um, he and I have been working on a number of ways of using technology to mobilize citizens uh, to exercise power mm-hmm. in a bunch of countries around the world, inspired by some things that we observed in the Arab Spring in Egypt in 2011 and refined over the years. Eventually, we decided to turn it into an app and go private. And so we're now in startup world in uh, Toronto, Canada, which is kind of uh, the heart of our tech world, um, but operating both in the United States and Canada. Okay. Well, there's a lot there. So let's, uh, let's unpack some of this. You mentioned you were in Venezuela. So what's going on there? What's that like? So where to start? <laughs> let, me, let me offer sort of a framing about why I do the things that I do and why I've been chose Venezuela as an assignment. Okay. It's not the most luxurious assignment in the world. Pretty tough place to live, especially for Venezuelans. Not that great for diplomats either. But it's really fascinating for one reason, and that is what's happening uh, with power dynamics Mm -hmm. in Venezuela. So diplomacy, I think, is really all about power. Mm -hmm. Um, It's about understanding power. It's about developing relationships with those in power and then trying to exercise influence with those people so that your state's uh, objectives get 
advanced. One of the dominant trends in the world right now is the diffusion of power. Mm-hmm. That nation states are no longer dominating power dynamics like they used to. Like Moses Naim, as you probably know, uh, wrote The End of Power. It's been a, a, a common theme and we see it in all kinds of dynamics around the world. What's happening in Venezuela is that the power of the Venezuelan state has atrophied and is now captured by a, a small group of people that have absolutely no concern about the national uh, interest. Okay. Um, and as they have uh, consolidated their power, the, the economy of the country has essentially fallen to pieces. And a country that was uh, richer than most of South Europe in the 60s and 70s, competing really with the United States and Canada for title of like richest country in the Americas now competes with Haiti for poorest country hmm. uh, in the Americas. And it's entirely driven by power dynamics, mm-hmm. um, the economic devastation of the country and all the social devastation that has come with that, with a spike in um, hunger, uh, maternal m- m- mortality, infant mortality, massive lineups around every single grocery store, the worst c- crime in the entire world, the highest murder rate, for example, in any country that's not at war, is all explained by power dynamics. And so as a diplomat, it was co- fascinating and compelling to be an observer to how that all happened and to see what a country like Canada could actually do about it. Okay, so this is an interesting concept, the uh, power dynamics being the underlying issue. Uh, one question, uh, an economist bias here, it's power dynamics, not oil prices that are the major issue? Yeah, yeah. So to get into the economics of it, the oil prices certainly exacerbate the level of national income and therefore the poverty that you see in Venezuela. But the total dependence of the Venezuelan economy on oil is as a result of political decisions that were taken. Mm-hmm. So when Chavez came to power, for example, seventy-five percent of the national income was based on oil. When and was by that? Nineteen ninety-eight. Uh, okay. And by the time he left, it was ninety-six percent. And he left in what year? He died. He died in, in what year? Uh, 2013. 2013. And in so those the, 15 years, oil went up 21% in terms of the national income. Yeah, so there's just like oil bonanza. There was just like money uh, coming out people's ears, literally, <laughs> in uh, the first decade of the 21st century. But because the country got so dependent on oil, it was therefore much less resilient to the oil price shock. And they essentially eliminated private industry so that when the one commodity on which they depend disappeared, there was no other economy to fall back on. And what was the motivation in eliminating private industry? Was that an ideological socialist idea or was that about the seizing of power by certain elites? Or was it something else? I think it's primarily the latter. I think it's that... uh, the principal objective of populist leaders, and I don't think Chavez or Maduro are unique in this, I think it's with populists everywhere, is to totally dominate societies, to have all power. So anyone who has any other power is a threat to them. NGOs mm-hmm. are a threat, the free press is a threat, independent courts is a threat, and businessmen, rich businessmen and, or large corporations are a threat. And what drives that? Is that a instinctual reaction of these leaders or is that a strategy, a rational cold strategy? Yeah, I'd say an instinct. Okay, so not um cuz I do I think if you were to interview a Chavez or 
if, if he were still alive, or Maduro now, um, he would justify his actions in ideology, and he probably would believe it. Okay. Uh, and yet populists of wildly different ideologies all behave the same way. So the right-wing uh, populists and the, the left-wing populists do the same things and then justify it in terms of whatever their ideological framing is. So Chavez and Maduro would say that what they're doing is trying to ensure that power is in the hands of the people. Mm -hmm. And since large corporations are a threat to that, they need to attack the large corporations. Putin would also, would also take measures against any independent company or any, any uh, independent commercial entity and then say it's a threat to the Russian nation. How would you define a populist before we continue the, the threat? Because there's a lot of good stuff yeah. to talk about. So a populist is someone who approaches power by the perspective of, I need to maximize how much is in my hands and minimize what's in the hands of everyone else. And I'll justify that by saying I'm the only legitimate representative of the people. And therefore, the peop for the people to have power, I have to have absolute power. That's how populists So populists mean popular support of the people. They, they justify their pursuit of absolute power by invoking the popular will. And is this something, for example, do kings need to do that? Or do kings, for example, in the Middle East, just justify it by religion or God or something? Yeah, kings don't. Kings are not populists. I suppose I might be overgeneralizing here, but kings justify their... I said, like, we're talking about absolute yeah. monarchs, not yeah. uh, constitutional monarchs. Absolute monarchs justify their uh, their domination of their country's politics by uh, tends to be by tradition, okay, uh, or by institutions. So they talk about the institution of the monarchy. You notice they say "we," for example. They don't talk about "me" yep. a lot, whereas populists talk a lot about "me." Yeah. So it's different. They're not they're not trying to say, "I represent the popular will." They say that I am the embodiment of the nation. And my father was before me, and my grandfather before him, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's why you should obey me, not because I represent what you think. It's that I am the embodiment of the nation. And what percentage of world leaders today, I mean, roughly, do you think would be populists in this context? I'm trying to put Chavez and Maduro in context. Yeah, here. so I'd say it's an increasing trend. Um, there used to be just a small handful, and now I'm a minority, but a, a pretty significant one. We're probably talking about the dozens. The dozens. Yeah. And, but why do you think it's an increasing trend? What, what do you think is driving the increase? So back to my earlier point about the diffusion of power mm -hmm. in the world. There has been, since the rise, I'd argue, of the internet, one reason why I'm interested in tech and why I am mm -hmm. left diplomacy for tech, the internet has driven this massive diffusion of power. And so the traditional places where it collects, like in nation states, uh, um, and the institutions particularly of nation states, um, have far far less of a monopoly on power. Mm -hmm. And that creates opportunities for opportunistic individuals to amass more power and to dispense with institutions. So there's a, a like a populist playbook that has started to play out in Russia, in Turkey, in Hungary, in Poland, in Venezuela. And even though each one of those countries has a very different ideological tinge where they're justifying their amassing of, of power in reference to different goals, they're they're doing the same things, and they're they're all feeding on the weakness of states uh, and a weakness that's been driven, I think, by technological change. So, lot to pick up on there. Back to the Venezuela story. Yeah. Uh, before I distracted you with all sorts of side <laughs> questions, but that is the purpose of our podcast: is to learn various concepts. And thank you for being such a good professor about it. Um, back to the Venezuela story. So. 
Chavez, 98 to 2013. Can you give me, give us a summary of what sort of happened during his time and then the transfer of power to Majuro and what's been going on since? Well, the explanation I'd give for the historical trend is uh, pre-Chavez because he comes into a context. Okay. Um, I also should point out that I arrived in Venezuela in 2014. So anything gotcha. that happened before is not from personal gotcha. experience. This is but I imagine you'd be better out. informed than the average Joe. Yeah. But I'm not a Venezuelan, and anyone who's you know a genuine expert on Latin American history or politics will have a different take. My take. Side note: Your daughter was born in Venezuela, right? Yeah. Is she so a Venezuelan? She has the right for Venezuelan citizenship. Okay. Okay. But we didn't pursue. We didn't get a passport for her because Venezuelan law actually limits the ability of my daughter to leave the country ah, of Venezuela. So Venezuela, being a Venezuelan citizen could be a limitation <laughs> as opposed to an opportunity in some ways. Yeah. Okay. Like we would actually be prevented from taking her home, even though she's three years old. <laughs> gotcha. Um, if we weren't doing so on her Venezuelan passport, if we happened to just have her Canadian passport or her British passport at the time. So we're like, why would we put ourselves <laughs> through that? But she was born there. Yeah, her name is Mia, and she was uh, born in 2015 when we were... My wife and I were posted there. So we've got this sort of personal connection to Venezuela. And the Venezuela we know is the Venezuela that's sort of after the destruction of this incredibly powerful and rich and successful and nation state and, and economy. In, in the 1980s, there was a major oil part of the story. There was a massive oil shock in 1982, I'm thinking, um, 81, 82, where the price of oil goes from like, $75 a barrel down to nine. Right. And petrodollars had been invested in these these uh, booming oil economies throughout the world. And because it looked like the future was unlimited, um, these countries massively overborrowed. And Venezuela was one of these countries that massively overborrowed. Gotcha. Um, and as of, all of a sudden, they had no ability to generate revenue of any kind, let alone pay off any of their debts. So that was like a huge economic shock, and the country really never recovered from that. And after about 10 to 15 years of kind of failed attempts to recover from that, Venezuelan people got pretty sick and tired of the market economy in general. They blamed their woes on the market economy itself. And so Chavez arose as someone who said the market economy is BS, and we're going to rip it up and try something else. So that's why he's popular to begin with. And, and of course, to do that, I need to have absolute personal power in, mm -hmm. in myself as a person. Not the state, not the institution, not the presidency, not the party in me, Hugo Chavez. It's all about me. Does that sound familiar? Only I can fix this. Um, anyway, so Chavez then... Um, How does he sell that? Through incredible charisma, through incredible political skill. He's a, a master orator and a way of kind of tapping into the mass emotion of the of the Venezuelan people and through this incredible economic bonanza of the unexpected rise in oil prices from 2000 to, I don't know, 2013, I think was when it started coming down, 2014. Um, so in that time, the, the country actually gets more and more income. Chavez gets more and more power. The institutions get weaker and weaker. Chavez then dies, dies with cancer in 2013. And so all this huge power that was invested in him personally had nowhere to go. It transferred, some of it transferred to his appointed successor, Nicolas Maduro. Uh, Maduro then won a, an election in 2013. So he had some kind of mandate of his own, but nowhere near the kind of authority that 
that Chavez had. And that's when the political institutions really start crumbling. They'd already been severely weakened by Chavez, but because he had so much personal power invested in him, he was able to rule the country. Maduro never inherited that full personal power, and the institutions had been severely broken. And so at that point, there's a major disconnect between what the government's actually able to do, like their ability to exercise power is, is fundamentally broken. So the power that... So it's okay. So some some power dissipates in the transfer between Chavez and, and Maduro. Where does that power dissipate to? Into factions. So the Venezuelan government is primarily described as, or best understood as, as a coalition of factions. Okay. Where every decision needs to be negotiated between five or six rival factions, and none have absolute uh, ability, uh, control over the other. Well, who are the factions? So there's one of them would be the military. Some of them would be associated with various uh, ministers that have control of institutions of the security apparatus, um, those that have access to oil and therefore the only income in the country. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons that economic policy is so disastrous in Venezuela, why the power dynamics lead to these horrible economic consequences is that the decisions that are made are made not on the basis of whether they're in the national interest, but just on whether consensus can be reached between the sure. consensus. And the only thing that these various factions agree on is their loyalty to Chavez, the legacy of Chavez. And because Chavez had these quite strong socialist ideals, they compete to become more and more extreme in their adherence to socialist ideals. Not because they truly believe in them, but it's the only way they can actually each one of them can kind of rise up above the others or pretend, prevent themselves from being forced out of power. Is the church a faction in Venezuela? The church is quite uh, significant. Um, it is a critical institution mm -hmm. and in that it's um, maintained its independence of the uh, state and has done a very good job of defending its uh, independence, therefore seen as a threat by the regime. And who speaks for the poor people in Venezuela? I don't know what percentage of the country would be poor, but who maybe you could... Well, more and more, 83% by the latest uh, poll. 83%. Are in uh, structural poverty. And who speaks for them? Is it the uh, No one. No? No. Uh, well, the, the church is interesting because the church is the only institution that's present in every single neighborhood in the entire mm. country because it's still majority Catholic okay. country, which is one reason why the state feels threatened by the church. The church doesn't have a political objective. It's not like the cardinal is like vying to become president of the country uh, or what have you. But they do have an independent voice, and they have kind of a moral authority, yeah. which can be dangerous for uh, people in power that are trying to use power for their own personal gain. And the people in power but, have not been able to co-opt the church? No. 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 So I don't think anyone speaks for the poor okay. in Venezuela. The that government sounds like a shame. Yeah, especially since the government justifies itself as having dominated the political scene and, and gathered so much power and concentrated so much power in order to help the poor. The fact that the, the ranks of the poor have massively grown mm -hmm. and the living conditions of the poor have just cratered shows that the, the government doesn't actually represent the poor. They represent themselves and the maintenance of their own power. So how do they keep... Poor people who are becoming increasingly poor and the numbers are swelling, vested in the system, or at least vested in not sort of overturning the system. So there's a, uh, a tool that every populist leader around the world uses, which is to divide the nation into citizens that they consider good, 
traditions that they consider bad, and then to justify everything they do as we're strengthening the poor so that we're, we're strengthening the good citizens so that they can attack the bad citizens. Mm -hmm. In some, this is like by ethnicity or by uh, by political position. In the in Venezuela, it's uh, the chavistas and the non-chavistas. Uh, the non-chavistas are treated as traitors to the country. They're treated as um, pawns of the quote-unquote empire, which is what they call the United States. And the decisions made by the Venezuelan government are always in favor of whoever their sort of captured part of the population mm -hmm. is uh, and justified by, by the battle that they need to wage against the, the rest. Right. So they have clientelistic policies where a certain portion of the population are the clients of the government. The government mm -hmm. gives them money. Mm -hmm directly mm -hmm. or gives them economic benefit directly in return for their votes. Yeah. It's a transaction. And is this one of those things where you have to keep switching who your clientele is? Is it a very fluid who your clientele is in this kind of world? No, what you tend to do is to try and deepen your relationship with the clients. So for Got example, you. there is about, I don't know, I'm making up the number, but say 10 to 15% of the population that has free housing given to them by the government. Mm -hmm. Their apartments are given to them totally free. Mm -hmm. Here's the key. Walk in, you got this like two bedroom Just a velvet apartment. Cloth. And the condition of living in that apartment, rent-free, mm -hmm. is that every time you vote, you're going to vote for sure. the Chavista. Sure. And uh, as is, things have kind of gotten worse and worse, uh, if there's two protests, uh, an opposition protest and a government protest, you're going to be in a government protest. Mm -hmm. um, and if it gets violent, you're going to fight. Right. So uh, and if you don't follow the rules in any of those, you lose your apartment. Right. That's how clientelism Mm -hmm. works in Venezuela. It's called Mission Vivienda, mm -hmm. and it's uh, it's a, a means by which populists kind of ensure the loyalty of a portion of the population. Mm -hmm. So those are the quote-unquote good citizens, and then the bad citizens are anyone that doesn't reliably vote for the government or protest in, front, in favor of the government or what have you. And what percentage of people actually believe that the system is working? I mean, so there's there's the velvet gloves... There's the risks and threats if you don't vote for the government. But are there some people who are just uh, either brainwashed or for it anyway? Or I'd say the portion of pe people that believe in the rhetoric of the government is tiny. Okay. Like in maybe the thousands or tens of thousands of people. Of a country, what's the population again? It's 30 million. Okay, so, it's, yeah, a, so it's, it's absolutely minuscule. Yeah, Okay. So people that do support the government support it because they're either in this clientelistic relationship and they um, are okay with the free apartment and don't mind the conditions. Yeah. Or they're uh, in the government themselves and they're <laughs> and they're benefiting. So that would be your ten thousand. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea how many how many are sort of true believers, but I th like at this point the country's so same percentage of believe wrestling is real or something. <laughs> At this point, it's so obviously broken. I mean, everyone can see that the poor are desperately poor. Right. Um, and so even if you're died in the wool socialist and you believe that the most important thing is poverty alleviation, like you can't believe yeah. that poverty alleviation matters and be supportive of what's happening in Venezuela. So you came to Venezuela. You were appointed Canadian ambassador to Venezuela in 2014. Yeah. And you were there for three years? A little bit more, yeah. Uh, talk to me about your time there. Uh, what what did you see? What were some issues you wanted to face? What were Canadian interests in Venezuela that you were beholden and, uh, well, that you were supporting and advancing? 
Sure. So let me talk a little bit about my official duties and objectives because yeah. I was a representative of the government of Canada, but also my sort of personal interest. One thing you might want to get into is the, the role of an ambassador because they're, they have this interesting combination of being very much the state representatives and very much an individual human being. Yes. It's not like a trade-off between the two. Yeah. It's uh, um, yeah, like an institution that's been around well, you're, for you're, you're, centuries. Um, you're both by, it's an institution that's been around for centuries, and you're both by your sort of extracurricular writing activities before and where you've been and your own bent and intellectual of sorts. And so you would have, I imagine, even more honed and sharpened individual interests than the median ambassador going in. Oh, well, there's some pretty interesting people that are ambassadors. The reason that I make this point is that often when you're a public servant, it's assumed that there's like a, an official line and official objectives and uh, you've got to be like a gray public servant and just like toe the party line and all that. And the more that you're an individual, the less effective you are at being the public servant. Yeah, That's actually true for, uh, for sure. a lot of public servants that you are a part of a big machine. Well, you, you don't want policemen making individual decisions. No, that's, that's a very good point. That would be ugly. Um, but it's not the case with, in, with ambassadors. Your ambassadors are selected not only because it's assumed that they're going to be able to uh, advance whatever the government's interest, but also because they're an individual who has some, is able to bring their own personality and their mm -hmm. own sets of, that they can represent their country through their own individual personality. Uh, that's certainly true because there is an element of being a public figure and political theater to the whole matter. And an individual personality, I presume, would be required for that. I'd say also it's about relationships. Like diplomacy is about relationships and the relationship breakdown into personal relationships and personal relationships are between people. So the more that you're an individual person, the more effective you are as a, as a diplomat. So um, uh, I'm with you on all that. Let's, let's, uh, we got a lot to unpack here. Let's start with just tell us what you're seeing when you arrive in 2014 in Caracas with your family or did, was your family with you at the time? They were, yeah. they were. So tell, tell us what's going on, what you're seeing, what you're playing into. Cause it, it would be very interesting for people to understand uh, these concepts from your eyes. Sure. So uh, on the professional front, the objective that I was being asked to advance was uh, human rights, because that's, that's the heart and soul of Canadian foreign policy. On the personal front, it was to try and understand what Venezuela was like in its full diversity. And okay. I was really, really fascinated by chavistas and chavismo and really interested in the problem of poverty alleviation and the, the different way that this government was going about it. So I kind of threw myself really heavily into that. I brought my family as well. Uh, I have a lovely British wife called uh, Kate and I came with two children, Luke, who's, uh, who was one at the time and Ava, who was two at the time. And then we had a third while we were there and we had a my, my wife was a major partner in all of this, not only by being my wife, but she's an anthropologist. So the two of us uh -huh. approached this kind of discovery of what and, Venezuela is. And you and your wife and young family must be stoked to leave the Ottawa winter and show up in the weather of Caracas. Yeah, the month that we left was uh, March of 2014, and there had been a massive snowfall the day before. So it was like 20 inches of like fresh snow all about us in, in Ottawa. My son had been basically trapped 
in the house for six <laughs> months because when you're that small, you can't just like go out and play it, uh, play it in the backyard. Um, so we went from that to arriving to this place that basically has the perf- the world's best weather. Like it's always high 60s Fahrenheit, 12 months of the year, never too hot, never too cold. It sounds Almost very paradise-like. Yeah, like tropical gardens, flowers and everything. Good fruit, Grass I presume. Everywhere. Yeah. And basically my son got there, having been bundled up in like winter clothes for six months, took all of his clothes off and basically <laughs> stayed naked for several months. Because <laughs> you can. And what about you? Like you you were, um, I mean, today you're you're relaxed. You've got, for those who can't see it, uh, since it's an audio podcast, you've got no tie on. But you were a suited, tied kind of guy. Are you sweating all the time? <laughs> no, there's nothing to sweat. It's not hot. It's like indoors. It's it's like indoor oh, temperature. Oh, 60s is still is still playable. Still playable. Yeah, so I'm not that great in Fahrenheit. I'm it's not like, either. In That's Celsius, what... it'd be high 20s. Let me put it this way: if you have, you're, you're ever have a choice between eating indoors and eating outdoors, yes, it's always more comfortable to eat outdoors. It's always more comfortable, even with a sports coat on. Yeah. Okay, I got you. So you were talking. Um, I'm going to take the story back a second because you were talking about something very interesting: personal versus the official objectives. So you've got an official mandate as an ambassador. You've got a mandate letter, presumably. Mm-hmm. Uh, and beyond the mandate letter, you've talked to the people you need to talk to and the government of Canada and to corporate interests. So you've got certain official objectives to push. Can you give me a sense of what those objectives were? So the official objectives were very centered on the promotion of human rights. There were some trade promotion uh, objectives as well. Cause who, who were our companies in there? What were we selling? So primarily agriculture. You used to be a major player in the oil sector because you know, Canada is a major oil country as well. And a lot of the expertise that we had, we used to be able to share with Venezuelans. But that's diminished as the economy has imploded. And conversely, our food exports have like skyrocketed as the as the economy has uh, imploded because they're more and more dependent on on uh, on food so grains and wheat and potatoes and uh, and that sort of thing so there's definitely a trade component um some consular meaning taking care of canadians in trouble there's always a handful of canadians in jail in any country in the world how many canadians do we have down there what's the community we, we estimate it's um probably as few as 2000 now okay after having been well, in the tens of thousands in the in the batteries. and are these Venezuelan Canadians or are they... now they're mo- almost entirely dual citizens. Okay. Yeah. yeah, and what like, are they down there many... for? Well, they're Venezuelans that happen to have developed a relationship with Canada over time. Oh, I and, see. But they're originally from Venezuela. Uh, a lot of them are are come from Venezuelan families and got maybe, you. Okay. maybe they stayed got abroad you. and in Canada got a passport and came back. That's got you. There's very few that are Canadians that don't have Venezuelan citizenship. Okay. At this point. But human rights is really the was the primary one, and the reason for that was that um, both the conservative and the liberal governments have made that a central element of their foreign policy planks. There are some major, growing systemic abuses uh, of human rights in Venezuela, but there's something that's um, be, that goes beyond that. That the Venezuelan government is also trying to change the international rules about human rights. They're trying to change what the norms are mm-hmm. by saying that the way that um, the United Nations defines human rights is actually wrong and that there's a more genuine way of understanding human rights, which happens to place the state as this, the main holder of human rights and the citizens um, as the threat to the human rights of the state. Is anybody buying this? Yeah, surprisingly. Uh, 
It sounds crazy. I'm I'm simplifying as well. There's probably a more sophisticated way to say it, but <laughs> their argument is that uh, states are well that a uh, in a country like Venezuela, rich businessmen are the principal threat, and the people that have the quote unquote true power um, that the state is the champion of the people, and so in the battle between rich businessmen and women and the state, we you know, the international community might be a little too focused on the rights of that rich businessman because as a citizen they have like certain rights of due process, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas they care about the rights of the of the poor, of the quote unquote true people, the good mm -hmm. citizens. Uh and therefore the pow the state needs as much power as it's possible as possible in order to protect itself from the evil rich businessmen. I'm assuming the the folks in New York at UN headquarters are giving this a lot of time though. I'm assuming they find this a little bit eye rolly. Well, there's quite a few states that advance this line of thinking. I'm, I'm sure there are. <laughs> the populace, um, and they're probably. making uh, the populace, and they're and they're gaining ground. Uh, are they really? Mm -hmm. Only because there's more of them. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Venezuela's got a, I think, a less compelling sort of counter vision. Uh, the more, uh, but a country like Russia, for example, would sure. say that it's all about national sovereignty, and sure. what happens below the level of the nations there, within the state, is totally and absolutely off limits for anyone else to say anything about that has not only gained ground, but that's probably the dominant norm in international relations now, as opposed to like five or 10 years ago when the dominant norm was still that international, individual human rights matter. So that's the official mandate. And you were talking also about diplomats having personal yeah. sort of objectives and mandates. And you and uh, you, you, will, you had begun on that a little bit. So yeah. maybe expand on so that my, touch. So my own, I don't think it's like versus, right? It's, uh, it's not versus, it's complementary. Uh, you can make them complimentary. In yes. My, in my case... Let's say complimentary-ish. <laughs> I mean, some people do totally different things. The German ambassador when I got there was a, was a rock musician, for example. Got you. And all of his diplomatic receptions were basically concerts where he would play music to like other people. So those are <laughs> not really complimentary at all. They're and, totally and, different, but And were the cool. um, official guests feeling that was sort of a tax... Or were they? Well, he's no, he's really. Or well, he's, he was good and they're it. fun. I mean, and they're, I, presumably he's a friend of yours. So you don't want. Yeah, to, he's a, he's an awesome guy. You don't want to think of it as a tax. <laughs> but mine, uh, my particular interest was in trying to get to understand the full range of Venezuelan society, meaning in particular uh, the poor, because those are far more difficult for diplomats to to have access. So generally, diplomats tend to live in the richest neighborhood of a city. Mm -hmm. They generally tend to associate, I mean, by the nature of their job, they're associating with like the elites and government and business and sure. cultural industries and what have you. Um, so it's actually not the default for diplomats to be exposed to uh, the urban poor or the rural poor mm -hmm. and, to, and to see what that other element or strata of society uh, is about. But this is a government, this is a whole state that had based itself on putting the poor first. And so I figured this is great. I'm going to try and get to know as many as possible. So I spent quite a lot of time in the barrios uh, of Venezuela, the um, urban slums, mm -hmm. which is where the traditional support for, for Chavismo had been located, and getting out of the city as possible uh, and getting out into into the rural areas, even visiting like communes, old-style, like Soviet-style communes that set up across the country. And how does the Venezuelan government, your host government, feel about you 
doing slightly non-traditional diplomatic activity and going into the barrios. They well, they were a bit threatened by it, which I, which I didn't expect. I now sort of understand, but at, at first I thought, well, their whole thing is like the poor need to be first and it should, they should be quite happy to have these foreign diplomatic representatives trying to understand like the perspectives of the poor and getting into well, the neighborhoods. I mean, I would presume they have showpiece showpieces in the barrios that they'd prefer you go to and I'm assuming you set up your own hooks and inns. Yeah, I was quite happy to be taken to those showpieces uh, as well. So, for example, they have like an urban, uh, uh, what's it, teleferico in English, cable car. You know, okay. like a, like if you're at a ski resort and you go to like... Yeah, 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 gotcha. Yeah. Well, they have one in the middle of the city that goes from like the slums into the into the downtown area. And in the you, air. Yeah, you basically like go above oh, wow. all, the, all the traffic jams. Okay. And this was like one of their sort of showpiece things. So I saw that. That was pretty, pretty cool. cool to take like a cable car ride over. You that know. sounds very innovative. Yeah, it was pretty pretty cool. I what mean, the, the Chavez government did a few th- cool things. I, I just know it by the name of the the um, is Spanish this, word for cable car. Which this is was built telefetico. like 20 years ago? or In Chavez's years, so maybe 2004, 5, oh. 6, something like that. It's pretty cool. Yeah, so I was quite happy to see that. But yeah, I would also find my own way into the barrios. So the barrios are... You could use one of those in Toronto. Yeah, I mean, they, they, some cities have copied Caracas okay. in, uh, in this innovation. The barrios tend to be controlled by gangs yeah. um, that are called colectivos or collectives. And uh, some of them are loyal to the government and some of them are independent. And basically the way you get into these neighborhoods, I mean, you could just walk in, but given that this city has the highest murder rate in the world that would be uh, a bit risky. So what you do is you negotiate access with the colectivos. So you ask them if you could learn about their colectivo and the, the work that they do. And But how do you meet the, how do you engage a colectivo leader in the first place? Is somebody on your staff that makes yeah. that call? Yeah, this is where the sort of talent of diplomats comes mm-hmm. in, is to be able to establish relationships in unlikely places. Okay. Um, but wow, is that ever eye-opening to go into some of these very dangerous neighborhoods with the support of the kind of local strongmen, uh, as it were, and meet the actual people that are living there uh, day after day after day and finding out what it's like to live with um, murders happening on a daily basis all, all around you. But also seeing like some of the, the incredible community bonds and the, the solidarity that exists between the people. Those were some of the best memories that, I've, uh, that I had in Venezuela was, was sort of cracking the surface and seeing like the, what the government would claim is the true Venezuela, um, even if they didn't want us to see it. So you said some of the best memories. Do you want to share a memory? This, this is a very, illustrate this a bit. It's a very interesting. Yeah. So, for example, there's um, uh, the barrios tend to be up in the mountains in the, the areas that are less accessible. Uh, and so in this valley between these two mountains... And this is counter to like in a lot of cities, the wealthy are in the mountains and the poor um, areas are in. Well, in Latin America, uh, Venezuela is pretty in mountainous. Rio, right? The, the poor areas in, are in the mountains, yeah, because yeah, it's hard to get up and down the mountains. Or gotcha. It's a lot of work to get up and down. Like the in LA, it would be the opposite. I suppose in a city that has proper infrastructure, the right. elevation doesn't right. matter. But in a country that doesn't have great infrastructure, getting water up a hill. Yeah, uh, sure. And just being able to like drive up a hill. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you have to climb basically 14 or 15 <laughs> stories just to get home every day, that's not great. Um, anyway, this one valley between two different mountains, each, each of the hills was controlled by a different gang and the valley that ran between them 
was where the murders tend to happen, the, you know, where the, the, the turf wars. Uh, so we got introduced to this church group, you know, the Catholic Church, that had housed some mothers of victims of violence from the two sides. So uh, this is a, a neighborhood that's re actually really close to downtown Caracas, like the old historic s center of the city, and it was a, a place that was really popular in Spanish times. It's a huge uh, barrio. I mean, there's, we're talking about a million people probably in the, the hills just north of, uh, of Caracas. And in this valley, uh, the mothers of the various teenagers that were fighting these ongoing turf wars got so devastated and so tired of essentially losing, of burying their teenage sons that the mothers got together and negotiated uh, a peace deal or a peace hmm. treaty between the two teenage gangs. <laughs> like how big are the, like how big's the neighborhood? How big are the gangs in terms of population numbers? Uh, so the gang, the, I mean, the barrio is sort of endless, right? It's just yeah. like shantytown after shantytown after shantytown after shantytown. What I learned from that visit was that the gangs that control uh, those areas, it depends how big and strong they are, but they, they're actually really, really small territories. So they would control areas of like three or four blocks. You'd, right. If you were with that gang, you were safe within that three or four three block. Four. And the gang is like, what, 20 people and a bunch of guns? or? Well, I guess to think of it this way, in a three or four square block area, all of the teenagers, all of the teenage boys would have to belong to that that gang. Otherwise, they'd be dead. So, how many teenage as active, boys? Oh, as active as active members, basically. They have to either be active members, or they have to be like in in some have some kind of understanding with the gang that they're sure that they're okay. So, you're probably talking about a dozens, maybe maybe up to a hundred on either side. And then, any time they cross the territory, they're they're taking their life into their own hands. So that's like a lot of teenage boys that are getting killed. And how does a gang support itself? Do they tax the citizens? Do they? I mean, they're teenagers, so they're, they're teenagers living in a poor neighborhood, so they don't really need a lot of income. They're right. basically living in a tenement in their, maybe their mother's place. So, for example, with a lot of gangs in America, gangs that initially had started for, say, protection purposes in uh, inner city communities in California in the 60s and 70s, um, later on went into drugs. They, they took the protection infrastructure and later on um, found an industry for profit. Is, is there that sort of industry going on or is it still at the protection at stage? Other neighborhoods, yeah. I mean, some of the gangs are absolutely huge uh, and make like running billion-dollar industries. In other billion? Parts. Well, gold, for example. Illegal gold in Venezuela is at least a billion-dollar industry. And it's, it's gang-controlled. And it's totally controlled by gangs, yeah. That's amazing. Um, so it's like an incredibly violent childhood to uh, to grow up in. So eventually, the mothers of the of the rival gangs. Browbeat Sorry, are these their, single parent homes? Probably for most for the okay. most part would be mothers. Okay, uh, not but some some fathers, but yeah, broken families for the most part. So the mothers would basically like browbeat their surviving sons into negotiating peace pact <laughs> with each other, which is great because you could just imagine these like really strong minded. Latino women in their 30s and 40s saying like, basta, enough, like let's let's sort this shit out once and for all. And they created like this little youth program where they taught, you know, reading and writing and had like a little music group and a choir and all that sort of thing. And so I got a chance to visit that and actually meet some of the mothers who had survived the horrible gang wars and had done something really incredibly powerful and incredibly moving. So those are like some of the, the memories that left a strongest impression on me while I was there, the, the, uh, the resilience of some of these people.
And what is the future for a young person, a young man who grows up uh, as one as a member of these gangs? Who it sounds like is whether or not they want to be in it is going to be coerced to being involved in in gang activity. Well, what what can this person look forward to when they're twenty or twenty five or thirty? So there, I should say that um, there's a real exodus from Venezuela now. So anyone with the means is uh, is trying to get out of the country. Okay, which is a bit of a shame in itself because Venezuela was the country that Latinos would go to okay. whenever their countries were poor or racked by violence for many many years, and now it's a source of of uh, emigration. So that's uh, like for anyone who's got the means, the, the people in this kind of neighborhood in that valley that I'm describing didn't have that, uh, that kind of means. So they would, I mean, one path would certainly to become part of the government system where you get a free apartment in return for voting in favor of the government and mm. showing up at the government rallies and, and all that sort of thing. That's a viable path forward. And how do you let the government authorities know that you'd be willing to play into their velvet glove system? I assume there's a surplus of people who want to get in on this velvet glove deal. Uh, yeah, the, well, it depends if you're in a neighborhood that the government tends to, that people tend to vote for the government or Got not. You. So if you're in a slum that's um, aligned with the opposition, there's probably not a lot of opportunities. Got you. But if you're in a slum that's aligned with the government, then you know some of the red T-shirt shows up from time to time and says, "Hey, you know, there's an election coming up. <laughs> if you want to vote for you guys, you might get a free apartment." And you know, so that's how the kind of recruitment uh, recruitment works. This was a neighborhood that was known as uh, supporting. The opposition because like the mayor tend to be an opposition figure and so they wouldn't have that uh, that opportunity there's a uh, massive unemployment in the country but one of the interesting uh, features of venezuelan socialism is that it's actually created a homegrown form of capitalism in that there are arbitrage opportunities so there's a massive hyperinflation the Venezuelan currency called the Bolivar is basically dropping through the floor every single day. And the goods that you have to purchase in Bolivars become more and more expensive. But if you can get your hands on dollars, you can practice arbitrage, which is basically trading one thing at one sure. exchange rate for an equivalent good at the, at the other exchange rate and making money off the trade. And that's where a lot of people are making money right now is arbitrage. And when the state fails, do cryptocurrencies or alternative currencies start coming to the fold? I heard about it, but I actually never saw it. I mean, people talked about Bitcoin. It happens in, in far more pragmatic ways. Okay. So, Like cigarettes? Uh, food, food. Food. Toilet paper. Cooking oil. Anything that's subsidized by the state, which is quite a lot in a socialist country, is being sold far below its market value. And then you take it to the black market and you sell it at 10, 15, 50 times the price. So the lineups you see in every neighborhood in Venezuela are often by people that are just desperate to get food. But it's also their, their ranks are swelled by the number of people that are practicing arbitrage. So you go in and you buy the regulated eggs and milk and whatever for like a tiny, tiny fraction of a dollar. And then you'd go to the, the market and you sell them, you know, you buy an egg for like one cent and sell it for $3, for example. And that's how you make your money. So, so, so you, if you grow up in one of those barrios, that's, uh -huh. that's a career path that's uh, open to you. Trader, essentially. A trader, yeah, which is basically like breeding, you know, a whole new class of capitalists, essentially. Sure. <laughs> which sure. is I find really, really kind of funny. So you're somebody who 
had the opportunity to get out of sort of the gilded life of a traditional diplomat and see some other parts of uh, the country. And, I've, and I presume you've done this in the, you've been in some other interesting spots, right? Like Egypt, Afghanistan, Somalia, am I right? Yeah, Iraq. that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and you clearly are someone who has got a nose and a heart for seeing where people are making world their worlds a better place. I noticed that's the name of your company, Better Place. Am I <laughs> Thanks right? For the plug. That's that's the that's the name of it. Um, talk to me a little bit. Like, I mean, tell me what the thought process in saying, okay, I'm going to leave diplomatic work in a traditional sense and do a tech company to yeah. make the world a better place. So it really comes back to power. Um, like when the, I was talking about this ghetto and. Um, Venezuela, what was really fascinating to me was who had the power to try and put an end to all the senseless violence. And it was basically these these angry women, mothers who had lost their, their children that were calling the shots. I'm always kind of curious to see who's calling the shots. Like you're automatically drawn to economics and like where's the, how's the uh, economy working and where's the money and all that sort of thing. I'm always thinking about where, who's, got, who's calling the shots, where the, where's the power. So I had a previous experience. Economists argue the power is where the money is. I'm not sure I agree with that 100%. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, that the power is sort of dictated by money and that people or, are sort of following the, their economic incentives. Or right? that there's numerous... Or financial incentives. Yeah, there's numerous types of power, but the people who are able to control financial incentives end up wielding a big stick in the power game. Could be, Yeah. In this case, I don't think these like mothers. Have no, it doesn't sound kind of Well, they, they're they're <laughs> dealing at a. It sounds like a much more important point on the Maslowian pyramid, which is they're dealing in life and death security. Yeah, yeah now we're talking about a very small uh, scale as well. This is just like a tiny, like fraction of this big uh, barrio. Anyway, in a previous experience, I had been in uh, visiting ghettos in Cairo. So I was posted in Cairo in the 1990s. Okay. Um, at a time when. Hosni Mubarak was the president, and things were quite stable. There were human rights abuses, but you know, humans, human rights activists weren't really able to make any any headway. I came back to Egypt in 2011 when the Egyptian Revolution happened because um, this is a country that I got to know really well and cared a lot about, and um, knew a lot of people, and was really curious to see how human rights activists had been able to make this massive change in 2011 that they hadn't been able to in all those previous years. Um, and as I was knocking around the neighborhoods of Cairo trying to get a sense of what was actually happening, I did visit a, what you, I guess you could call it a patio as well, an Egyptian um, poorer neighborhood to, s- to see how they were dealing with this like, new sort of post-revolutionary order. So one of, the cool, one of the difficult things about the Egyptian revolution is that it was against the police, and so the police disappeared. So there's no law and order in Egypt disappeared as they just melted back into the regular population. Yeah, they just like stopped showing up for work. Stopped showing up for work, and so they're ordinary citizens again. Yeah, I mean, eventually they got reconstituted and kind of re sort of reasserted themselves. But for a few months, there just weren't any police anywhere. Um, This is a country far lower crime than Venezuela, but still, it's a major problem. And in this uh, neighborhood that I visited. I noticed that people were self-organizing in that society to try and figure out how to run, the, how yeah. to provide security and how to run the neighborhood where teenage boys have, you know, more brains than, more brawn than brains um, would just man barricades and they would control the flow in, out of the 
neighborhood. So they kind of had a, they were able to check like who was coming in and who wasn't. And that was their, their way of kind of providing security, like citizen policing. And thing. who was the brains behind the brawn that were the teenage boys? So that's the thing is there was no one person directing it. It was, it, it was the, that diffuse. The crowd itself was sort of self-organizing. That's very, That's a fascinating point that yeah. it really was yeah. crowd not based, but it was it was just somehow happening oh, on the its crowd own. Crowd is the right word to say. The crowd thinks has a has a way of thinking and communicating and making decisions that doesn't require a, some person above it or behind it, like pulling the strings and calling the shots. And that's where this is the new dynamic of power that we're seeing increasingly in the age of the internet that I hadn't seen before. And I saw it in this slum in Egypt. They had cell phones, and so sometimes it was by SMS, and sometimes it was by uh, email or Twitter or what have you. But they were able to send messages around a group of you know a few thousand people to say, um, "Hey, we don't have enough people manning the barricades uh, tonight. Could we get some volunteers?" And next thing you know, the volunteers would show up, and then they'd be like, "Well, we got these. Um, we've got this elderly woman who's got to go to the hospital, but you know." The hospital's not working because of the revolution. Does any, is there any doctor or any nurse in the neighborhood? And a doctor and nurse would like show up. And things would just happen sort of spontaneously in that way, in a, in a self-organizing way. And that was kind of a light bulb moment for this, us. This is sort of the opposite. I mean, I'm not a political scientist, but this is the opposite of Hobbes' take on what happens when there's a yeah. absence of authority. So your, your empirical data point is that Hobbes would be wrong here. Uh, well... I had much more of an insight into Hobbes when I was in this Venezuelan slum I was talking okay. about. Right. <laughs> I, I'd be happy to hear either or both, yeah. I think there's a natural tendency for humans that trust each other and that um, feel a bond with each other to collaborate. Okay. Um, so within that three or four block square radius that I was telling you about, that's entirely natural. That's what happens in the state of nature is that 100 to 150 right. to 200 human right. beings will band together and will collaborate. Our normal nomadic tribe sizes. Yeah. You're saying that groups self-organize amidst the chaos. That's what you were seeing yeah. in in Egypt and in a leaderless, without an obvious, this person has to be the alpha. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Talk to me more about that. That sounds like that's quite a finding. Well, I've sought out areas where societal order has broken down, I guess. Somalia, Iraq, Afghanistan, and then Egypt in the post-revolution um, these are all very, very violent places, so I'm not saying that there's like any sort of angels in human nature. But what I've seen in every single one of these places is that in a crisis situation, the first instinct of humans is to collaborate with each other, not to compete. Things obviously fall off the rails in one way or the other, because otherwise we'd have this kind of like a utopian society. Uh, what I saw in Egypt was that the Egyptian people that we met, all different ages, men and women, rich and poor, all had that sort of natural instinct uh, to collaborate. And as long as they could communicate amongst each other in a relatively like horizontal way, they could uh, they could keep that going. I assume what happens in like a you know total state of nature, if you go back in history, would be eventually the bossy people <laughs> would sort of rise and say, "No, I got to call the shots." And the you know, humans tend to follow, and so they follow the leader, and then the leader eventually sort of amasses power, and then um, and then asserts authority that way. But yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a there's a lot here. I mean, the, the two questions I wonder about that are: there's so many different psychological types of people and typings. Yeah. 
And I don't know how many people are zero sum as a percentage of the population. Yeah. Zero sum power people that I need to have it all. And how many are more like the grandmother where where you're yeah. thinking like, well, I mean, you know, I've got love. I want to I want to share it. I want everyone to kind of do well. Uh, you know, how many are driven by jealousy and how many are kind of a little more easygoing than that? The other question, because uh, I'm thinking out loud, but the societies you mentioned are all societies where conceivably there's a healthy respect for elders. And I wonder if that's a mitigating factor against the brawny teenagers just totally running rampant. Because I, I presume that ultimately we don't want to live in a society run by 17-year-old boys. Yeah, that would be an unhappy place to live. <laughs> and so if the 17-year-old boys at least can be checked by grandmothers yeah. and grandfathers, that would be a big benefit Yeah, to everyone else's quality of life. Uh, yeah. What we saw in Egypt was pretty fleeting. Uh, to be honest, like we were there for a few months in 2011 and eventually, obviously, it reverted back to the the kind of Mubarak style regime that uh, that is down there. So I don't know how much we can glean from from that. Well, there is something about crowds being able to self-organize and then it being based on communication and human relationships. That's where I started getting interested in tech because okay. tech basically facilitates communication. I have no background in tech at all. This is not an area that I ever studied. I wasn't like an engineer. I didn't really care about software or anything like that before. But when I saw that the way that people were communicating amongst themselves was leading to a very different political or social outcome, that's what I kind of got fascinated. Well, 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 tech is the tool. It sounds like you have some insight. You certainly have a thesis on the underlying algorithmic infrastructure of how people will come together. Yeah, that if they're communicating sufficiently, the, the tendency will be to toward a collaboration and also speci specialization that, you know, the, as, as you were saying, the 17-year-old boy and the sort of 65-year-old woman are, are not going to be doing the same tasks, right? <laughs> They'll do something that's useful for the group. The 17-year-old the, the will protect the group and the 65-year-old will, I don't know, Ideally, make the decisions. <laughs> <laughs> At least resolve disputes or whatever, like make sure everyone gets along. And so uh, that's what that's uh, where the genesis of Better Place was, was in seeing if we could kind of reproduce what I saw as a sort of naturally occurring phenomenon Okay. Um, in a reproducible manner week after week, month after month, year after year. And the phenomenon you're trying to reproduce is the capacity for groups of people to self-organize with some kind of positive outcome in mind yeah so we frame it as civic action so this would be um collective action that advances the public good so it could be you know advancing human rights or protecting the environment or fighting corruption or um gun laws fighting the, the poor yeah most recently we've worked with high school students in in the u.s for the march for our lives so introducing more sensible uh gun laws any of these issues on which people would like to collaborate to make it easier for them to collaborate and then to find out what each person has to offer that might be quite different from, you know, between you and me. And that's basically what we built Better Place to do. So tell me, how does Better Place do it? Well, let's, let's even take a step back. You said you had no background in tech. How do you go yeah. from having no background in tech to co-founding a tech company? And what, what does that process look like? Yeah. So, um, uh, is a learning process. Um, thank God for uh, my Georgetown education, I guess, that kind of instinct towards learning. 
I was uh, based at Stanford University that year, and so um, I was surrounded by people that had a lot more uh, aff affinity with it. We organized hackathons, which are also almost like celebrations of amateurness. Like you don't have to be a professional to show up at a hackathon and start building software. You just have to be willing to kind of try and learn. Hackathon for those that don't know it is a an event where a bunch of different software developers show up. They're given a problem and then they start writing code on the spot. To so try this and is like build in the uh, the Facebook movie. Yeah, well, they have the competitive uh, the hackathon with hackathon. the te tequila. The guy who yes. they have to keep drinking tequila every ten minutes. Yes. so it's supposed to slow down their their coding skills. Yes, the person who finishes it first. There was no tequila involved in my hackathon, <laughs> but. At Stanford, there was nothing stopping me from organizing a hackathon. I just put up my hand and was like, I'll do it. We brought in these Egyptian political activists who had like a specific problem. And then we got filled the room with software developers. And we said, can you guys write software that would allow them to do what they want to do? So give me an example, concrete. What's the problem and what are they writing the software on? Uh, so one of them wanted to educate individual citizens about the various candidates for parliament. And so they had all this information on how this person had voted on controversial issues in the back and they wanted to have like software that would be like you press a button and candidate you know Mohammed el whatever um here's his voting record so someone built that software for that egyptian group in our hackathon uh, i didn't do the building all i did was brought people together and i guess that's where my diplomatic sort of the tie between my diplomatic skill and the tech world is that diplomats tend to bring groups of people together to solve common problems so we brought together technologists designers linguists because you know, I had to do everything in Arabic, um, and the political activists, and uh, that was... And who's financing this? It's not cheap to fly people in from Egypt and then bring in linguists to work with Yeah, them. Stanford University gave us a little bit of research money towards this. Gotcha. Yeah. This is all based on their Google revenues. Eh? They're happy to <laughs> throw some out to other promising startups. Stanford's a, a well-funded university. I've noticed that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that was my sort of first, uh, first taste, and uh, I'm... Um, got the bug and ever since then was kind of fascinated by what software could do to solve problems. It took a long time to be able to build the software to solve the problem that I identified in Cairo mm -hmm. because mobile phones had to evolve to a to the point that it's instinctive. What do you mean software in this context is a software platform? Yeah, so we built a software app, a okay. mobile a mobile app. For Android or iOS? Or? It's just on the web, actually, so it doesn't okay. matter what phone you use. You just okay. visit better.place, and the app is there. Okay. But it only works on a cell phone, and uh, the ubiquity of cell phones in 2018 makes it possible sure. in a way that it wasn't possible uh, before. My partner, Co uh, Farhan Ladhani, who was in the Canadian government with me at the time, was the one who learned the tech. He's, he runs the tech side of things. And uh, the partnership between he and I is where the kind of creative energy has uh, has emerged. We've, I mean, we made a lot of mistakes along the way too, and we learned from some mistakes. So in this early stage in Egypt, the most embarrassing thing that happened to me <laughs> was that at a certain point, I had to actually write the software myself because there just was no one else to do. And there was a deadline. There was an NGO that wanted a, a like a wiki style thing for writing constitutions among tens of thousands of people, which they thought was going to be a really powerful idea and we agreed to build it and uh, crowdsourcing has its limits um, because eventually when you really need something done there's no volunteer available for it <laughs> so it's the guy who was in charge I was like oh I guess I'll do it and I was up until three or four in the morning 
trying to teach myself the software to. Well, what language were you using? Uh, it was called uh, CSI. And how hard CSS. is that? CSS. 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 <laughs> Remember the, the name of the how language. How hard CSS. is it to teach oneself CSS? <laughs> Even how hard is it to teach oneself the acronym? There's like YouTube videos that you basically <laughs> Google like, I need to do this with CSS. And then you try and see if you understand the instructions. And then if not, you like look up another YouTube video. And it was it was a mess. I was up all night. And at that point, I was like, it sounds like it'd be easier to, to actually get one people. of your kids to, like, <laughs> to do it. Everyone would probably pick it up in a heartbeat. Yeah, the, the the key is definitely to find someone else who who has those kinds of skills. Um, Were you successful in teaching yourself the software? I I managed to solve that problem that evening. Okay. At, at the cost of like not sleeping. And, sure. Uh, the the NGO that we were building this for the the next day saying. This kind of looks like shit. <laughs> this is the least like, scalable like, software <laughs> platform I've ever seen. <laughs> but that was 2011, and by 2018, we've kind of we've learned a thing or two. Gotcha. Mostly, I've learned like how to get the resources together to hire the people that have the skills to do a better job. Than Specialization. I did in 2011. <laughs> yeah. Trial and error. Um, we had a a failure in Egypt, and then a success a few years later with the project we did in Iran, where we built a platform for human rights inside Iran that worked uh, that worked very well. Um, How does the Iranian government feel about that? Well, the Iranian government's very divided. Okay. Um, so it turns out that some factions uh, were actually relatively supportive of there being a software platform that would encourage Iranians to share their opinions uh, freely, and then others... Uh, like the security services and others that were quite uh, opposed to it. So where are you now? So it's 2018. You've got the company Better Place. Yeah. Uh, what, so what is Better Place? For people who don't know, and, and talk to me a little bit, where they go on the internet to where? To the, web, the website, they just go on their mobile, they go to www.better.place. And it will appear on their phone. Oh, it's, dot place is your yeah. Uh, it's not a dot com. It's got you. dot place. Got you. So you you've really benefited from ICANN opening up. There the, you go. Uh, former, top level do domains. Speaking to a former Canadian representative at ICANN, <laughs> you visit that site on your mobile phone. Okay. Uh, it asks you the software asks you a few questions. Yeah. What issue are you interested in? The environment, yeah. human rights, crime, whatever. What are you good at or what skills do you have? Like I can write, I can code, I've got a car, I've got time. Fine, yeah. Where do you live? Washington, yeah. D.C. Bam, here's a task that you could do right now. Here's an action that you could do on your issue Yeah. that would make a difference in the next few minutes or next few hours. It's wow. a mic micro task. My crowdsourcing works by having thousands of people each doing a little task yeah. as opposed to a small number of people doing a really big task. Gotcha. Um, and we basically have been able to translate various social causes into these like little micro tasks it sounds like a better way to use your midnight to 2 a.m <laughs> ipad time than <laughs> just surfing celebrity gossip yeah well, i had to go through that i think to uh well we, we kind of had to cater to where people are too everyone's like addicted to their their cell phones now right so yeah. you've got this app and it's enabling um, it's enabling sort of piecemeal uh, contribution to a larger cause. Yeah. Who, who's your clientele? So let me give you a concrete example of a, a recent use case. Sure. High school students across the United States uh, rose up after the Parkland massacre yeah. to organize marches. The biggest one was here in Washington, D.C., but there were basically every major city in the United States. We managed to um, get to the high school students of Spokane, Washington, 
which is a very red part of the United States, eastern Washington. I always forget, red is... Republican. Republican. Yeah, pro-gun, pro okay. um, anti-gun control. No. So the fact that these... It's a hunting has, kind of jurisdiction. Yeah, and also very sort of libertarian. Got and, you. Yeah. Um, very pro-Second Amendment, all, all that kind of political culture. So the fact that high school students there wanted to march in favor of gun control was unexpected. Um, and we were able to help them basically figure out all the things that all the tasks that need to be done in order for a major march to be organized. Like you've got to apply for a permanent per, a permit. You've got to like distribute flyers. You've got to like train people in how to deal with counter protesters. Huh, okay, got you. Yeah. Um, and we put each one of those as a task or an action inside Better Place, and then they spread it around the city. And people instead of like going to people and saying, I want you to do this, I want you to do that. You do, they just said, go to Better Place. You kind of figure out for yourself what role you want to play in our March for Our Lives. And through that, they were able to mobilize more than 100 volunteers and organize the second largest march in the recent history of Spokane. That is interesting. So they got this like much greater scale than they yeah. were before because they had 100 volunteers. You know, And also conceivably, it feels possible when the option of somebody aggregating inputs exists. Yeah. That yeah. if you're one or two or three individuals who want to organize a march, but you don't know 100 people, it doesn't feel doable. No, they would have had much more modest uh, objectives for the, the march. When they knew that they could potentially reach this large, they were like, we're going to be right in the main park in the heart of Spokane so that everyone can see us. We're going to choose this big, big open space and we're going to fill it. And they pulled it off. They had uh, had five thousand people. So here's a, so if I take this to you, uh, Ben Rosewell, I know you are very interested in the outside world. I'm also interested in your thoughts on it. So I'm going to take this back to you for a sec. As a diplomat, you know you've got all these resources, right? You've got staff. You've got certain types of status. You can get into places and see things. And people are probably automatically listening when you talk. Now you've got the opportunity for a scalable platform that is tech, but conceivably you don't have the same degree of resources yet you're still a startup mm -hmm. where are you finding yourself more effective in uh like in career terms not in career terms but in terms of reaching objectives you're looking to reach you've set an objective two two weeks from now on aiding yeah said march is that easier to do is from your tech oh, well that's a good question so when you're in government particularly when you're in a senior level um as i had the honor to be you do have access to resources so you can mobilize like a lot of people to do stuff because they're on staff and that's their job yeah, yeah. um so that's um, you have resources gratifying. yeah but there's also constraints right they you're pursuing the objective of the government itself yeah. as opposed to the thing that you personally need to uh need to accomplish so now i have far fewer resources but far fewer constraints as well i do have i think a common like there's a commonality in what I'm trying to achieve either through diplomacy or through technology, which is to find ways that citizens can organize themselves to advance human rights. I, I'm seeing that. And when did that become, it, it almost feels like a life objective of yours right now. And when did that kind of become this life's work or life objective? Yeah, it's, it's not something I set out to. It's just sort of uh, emerged How did you find over the it? years. Yeah. Um, I guess I found it in... Um, <laughs> this is going to sound weird, but in Iraq in 2003. So one of my diplomatic assignments was to be the, the sole Canadian diplomat in uh, Baghdad in the year that the United States invaded and displaced Saddam Hussein and took over the government of Iraq. 
So I was posted there, and I got to see the war up close and personal. And this, this, the the insurgency began, and the mm-hmm. the death toll kind of go through the uh, go through the roof. Um, it was a pretty uh, horrible experience to go through to see that kind of war, um, and also to see kind of how helpless people that are supposed to be powerful, like higher ups and government generals, and um, Paul Bremer, the administrator of the coalition provisional authority like the main american authority like these guys had very little uh ability to direct what was happening around them uh-huh. the a war has this kind of like unstoppable momentum that you can't really do anything about um it was very difficult to do anything about and in the midst of that the only hopeful thing that i saw was iraqis iraqi citizens mobilizing themselves to participate in an election in 2005 it sounds totally hokey i think to see it was really ground up or coming out of this it was particularly the the observation effort for the first iraqi election so the americans come in they eliminate saddam hussein they install an undemocratic regime by definition because there hadn't been any election and then eventually they have to have an election the problem is when you've got people dying by the tens of thousands how do you run an election campaign and actually have people show up at the ballot box and everything and why are the said authorities in that context not able to control what's going on uh because war is uh, has a sort of tit for tat uh dynamic where you're literally fighting for your life and so that objective of survival trumps everything else that you might want to accomplish you're trapped in this cycle of you know, being strong so that your opponent doesn't kill you, and then your opponent responds to your strength by, by you know, escalating, um, and you're uh, you're kind of trapped in a, in a dynamic you can't get out of. And so these powerful figures weren't able to do anything. But in the process of that election, they needed to have some observers to just to make sure that the whole election was free and fair. And I saw uh, ten thousand Iraqi citizens self-organize an uh, an observation effort that may played a major role in making sure those first elections were actually clean and clear, uh, clean and fair. It didn't put an end to the war, obviously, but I saw citizens exercising power in a way that the, the generals and the presidents and the ministers weren't able to. And back to this sort of same theme, I guess I've been talking about throughout of power. Like I saw power in action being exercised by individuals and thought, this is what I want to spend my life helping is regular people organizing themselves this way. And this also picks up a theme you identified earlier, or you alluded to earlier. Not even alluded to, but you were talking about that maybe I, I was then, you invoked, you got me thinking. There's something about being an elite or an establishment figure where you, if you're not careful, you end up in kind of a gilded cage, whether it's a green zone mm-hmm. in Baghdad or some kind of you know diplomatic compound in, in Caracas. Yeah. But you have to be able to get out beyond that to figure out what's going on. Yeah. And it sounds like through tech, you can, there are no barriers in that sense, hmm. right? You don't need actually seven armed guards to find yourself into where things are happening. Yeah, no, you can contact millions of people instantaneously through the, uh, through the internet. And then if you can convince them to act together in some kind of coordinated fashion, you're actually building power. And, so what is your vision for Better Place? I mean, what is it? You're, you're based in Toronto now. Yeah, at that's the right. Mars focused, Discovery District. Yeah, the, okay. so Mars is like an innovation hub that's in downtown Toronto. 
that sort of trains new companies and gets them into their start. But we're focused actually on the United States more than Canada because uh, as dark days as this might seem to a lot of Americans, there's this incredible renaissance of activism of citizens kind of taking action and getting involved. And so we're making our software available to all these uh, all of these people in the United States. Um, it doesn't have to be explicitly political. Uh, some of the things are, are sort of more social in nature, but our vision for better places that eventually it will be the default tool that people think about when they want to do something to make their country better or their community better. Because they can go there and they can quickly find a task that's simple and easy and they can do mm -hmm. right away and it has immediate tangible impact. So in the way that you kind of think of like Twitter is the place to like vent about whatever your political views are or Wikipedia is where you go to like look up who that obscure character is on TV that you've been watching. We want people to think of like better places. You know, I'm worried about the environment. I should do something about it. I don't really know what. You go to a better place. You get a task. You do it. And um, I'm conscious of the time because you've, you've offered a lot and I know you've got a, a lot of meetings going on today. But I've got to ask this. Uh, crowds have energy. Positive, negative. I um after the after the guns after the gun march a few weekends ago, I actually uh, rolled my uh, baby daughter down to Pennsylvania Avenue that day just to feel the energy, see okay. what's feel what's going on, and you could feel it, right? You see all these junior high kids and their parents, and they've got signs they mean well, and you really you feel it. I don't, I don't know if my if my daughter felt it, but she can't talk yet, so I couldn't tell. <laughs> but I I certainly felt it. And, I, and I'm, I'm presuming you're someone who feels the energy of crowds. You've been in a mm -hmm. lot of crowds. When you've got a crowd aggregating on a technology platform like Better Place, do you feel energy or is it a different feeling? There's nothing like being in a physical crowd with, uh, with all those people together. There's like a density of human relationships and okay. human connection, which is very tangible. You feel your, in your there. heart. Yeah, and um, I think there's a, some interesting crowd psychology that suggests that you're not entirely yourself when you're in a crowd either. Yeah. You actually become part of the That's right, yeah. mob, right? Yeah. Uh, if it's a negative crowd yeah. or a violent crowd, then it, you actually are more prone to violence yourself just by being in the, the heart of it. So you don't really feel that as much uh, online, but you can see some pretty extraordinary things happen in real life by people coordinating online. I don't think that the real action is what's happening on the internet. It's just that the internet brings people together to do real things in their physical surroundings. And ben, better.place, www.better.place. You check it out from your mobile phone. Mm -hmm. Thank you for uh, coming by today. Is there anything, any last word you want to put out there? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess... You know, this podcast is about diplomacy. We've talked about a whole bunch of things, but I imagine a lot of the people listening to this are kind of curious about diplomacy and, and how how diplomats operate and see the world and their access to, like, those in power. Um, the, the reason that I've left diplomacy and gotten involved in tech is that I actually think power is kind of all around us. And mm -hmm. uh, individual citizens actually have tremendous power. Um, so rather than like watch people in the gilded cage thinking, wouldn't it be great to be one of them? I think it's uh, an opportunity everyone has to get involved and do something to start exercising the, the, the power that they have. It doesn't have to be with Better Place. Obviously, we'd be happy to have people on the app. But, you know, the next time there's a march or um, if you want to show your either opposition or support to a, a government, my hope is that every citizen becomes more involved in their community and their country because we have these unprecedented opportunities to do so thanks to the internet. Ben, you're doing some really neat stuff out there. Uh, thank you for taking the time um, 
to visit us here at the Woodrow Wilson Center in uh, Washington, D.C. As you mentioned, you've uh, lived in D.C. In, in your younger years, and uh, I know you're a pretty frequent visitor. I, I hope you'll come back and see us again sometime. All right. Thank you, Audrey. Okay. Um, so thank you, Ben. And well, thank you, Ambassador Roswell, I should say. And so to all our listeners, thank you for your time today. I hope you enjoyed the talk with Ambassador Ben Roswell, the CEO or co-founder. Co-founder. Co-founder yeah. and president of uh, Better Place, a innovative Toronto company that's doing some neat things out there in the world. Uh, we're very happy he could visit, visit us here at the Woodrow Wilson Center's Canada Institute in Washington, D.C. Today is April 5th, 2018, and I wish you all a lovely afternoon, evening, or whatever it is in your part of the world. Thank you.